Welcome to the Dwell Church Sermon Archive. Dwell is a family defined by the love of God and committed to giving it away. Here is this week's message. Uh, As Cash said, we are continuing on in Matthew right now. And uh, he just read the passage, so you should know what this passage is about. Uh, Clearly, it is about weathermen and weatherwomen, okay? Uh, And how effective or ineffective they are, and let's be honest, uh, they stink, right? I don't think at this point in 2023, uh, after all this training that they have to go through, they study the sky, they're tracking barometric pressure and isometric pressure and atmospheric movements and El Ninos and La Ninas and stuff like that, and still... They can't legitimately tell me whether or not it's going to rain today. I mean, they can get close, right? They always hedge their bets. You guys know about the weather people, right? They do like 50% chance that it's going to rain somewhere in your zip code today, and that's about as close as we can get, and we're all like pretty comfortable with this. I don't really get it. I mean, we saw the movie Twister like 10 years ago. They were shooting up these little balls into the sky so that they could track and understand how the weather is moving. They do that all the time, and still we cannot justifiably judge uh, whether or not it's going to rain. As I was writing this, this is not a joke, okay? As I was writing this, my uh, phone told me it's going to stop raining soon. And then I looked outside and it was not raining. And this is as good as we can get, right? All right, this is just, this is pitiful. Nobody else is as mad about this as I am. I don't know why you guys are so content with this. Uh, back in the day, apparently, Uh, They all thought they could watch the weather and understand the signs, and Jesus was telling them, like, even though you think you have that, you still are missing out on me, which is why the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, for those of you guys who are just joining us in Matthew, by the way, these are the guys that are always on Jesus' case. They were like the religious elite back in the day. They were the ones that should have known the most about God but didn't know about him. So they walk up to Jesus, and they're like, hey, man, if you're so like Jesus or whatever, give us a sign from heaven. Now, that's really not cool, right? Last week, we had this lady who came up to Jesus and asked for her daughter to be healed, and he did it. Then he fed 4,000 people with just a little bread and fish. Jesus is all the time walking around doing all these miracles, but basically these Pharisees and Sadducees walk up to him, and they're like, hey, we've heard about the miracles that you've done, but if you want us to believe, then you need to do something else. You need to give us a sign. You got to show us something else. Jesus doesn't bite. This is what he says in verse 2. He says, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. That's them trying to be uh, weathermen. And in the morning, it will be stormy for today. The sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except for the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Now, the observant among you that really should pat yourselves on the back and give yourself a cookie because this is going to take some, like, good, good memory work, should recognize that Cullen already expertly preached this sermon a few months ago uh, where Jesus tells them to look at Jonah when they start asking for signs. Does anyone remember that? No, I'm getting no nods. All right, it's a good thing Cullen's not here. It would break his little heart. Uh, but uh, he talks about this in Matthew chapter 12. You can go back and you can find it on our website or on podcast or anything like that. Um, And basically, Jesus gives us a cool model for the way that he talks about himself in the Old Testament. So Jonah uh, is practically dead in the belly of a fish for three days. And Jesus says, hey, even a better Jonah is here. I'm going to die and go in the grave for three days. And I am preaching the same message that Jonah is preaching, that there is salvation and forgiveness from God. He preached it to the Ninevites. I'm preaching it to everybody. And uh, so that's basically what Cullen talked about. Here he tells us two other things. 
One, he reminds them that it's strange that they think that they can see the way that the weather is turning by the skies, and yet they cannot tell this. I think he's highlighting something here about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's like, it's weird that you like think based on what you can see, that you can predict what's going to happen. And yet here I am, the answer to so much prophecy, the answer to so much in the Old Testament that is telling you about my coming. And yet still, you can't see that I'm here. You can't see that it's me. The second thing that he tells them that's different from the previous passage uh, is that he calls them an evil and adulterous generation an evil and adulterous generation. Evil kind of makes sense, right? Like, you get that. Like, they're opposed to Jesus. Jesus is good, so the opposite of that would be evil. That makes sense, right? Adulterous seems a bit harsh, right? Like, that doesn't really track with me. Adulterous seems like the wrong word to use there. Adultery is to cheat on your spouse. Jesus calls the Pharisees and the Sadducees that. And I don't think he's really speaking about, like, marital unfaithfulness here. He's saying something about them. So we have to ask the question, as we're going through this text, what is so adulterous about asking for a sign from Jesus? What is so adulterous about seeking a sign? I'm going to just let that dangle a little bit and then come back to it later, if that's all right with you guys. So he leaves them, and he goes off with his disciples, and you can tell he was still thinking about those pesky Pharisees because he says this, uh, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And I love this, right? The disciples look around. They're like looking at each other. They're like, did you bring bread? He's talking about leaven. Clearly he wants us to have bread. Did you have bread? Was I supposed to get the bread? Are you getting the bread? Um, Jesus, aware of this, says, oh, you a little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 or how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Jesus seems like maybe he's a little bit frustrated here. Who knows? But he gets it that the Pharisees and Sadducees don't get it, right? They're always bothering him. They're kind of the bad guys in these stories. But for the disciples, how can they not get it? They weren't asking for a sign, but instead they were concerned about bread. And Jesus doesn't say what you want him to say and just like look them all in the eye and be like, it's a metaphor, all right? I am making a metaphor. No, he looks them in the eye and he says, why are you worried about bread? And I think what happens is Jesus puts to the side like the signs and wonders for a moment and just focuses on the fact that these guys are hung up on bread because that's like absolutely absurd. Just days ago, he fed 4,000 people with just some fish and some bread, he was able to multiply it and feed all these people. Why would the disciples ever, for the rest of the time that they are with Jesus, why would they ever, ever, ever worry about bread? Why would that ever be a thing? And yet here they are, right next to Jesus, saying, hey, we didn't bring any bread. I think these two stories are put next to each other and connected for a reason. They are both stories of forgetting the past. For the Pharisees, they did not know about, like, Jesus referring to the story of Jonah, but also just the Old Testament in general, uh, the ways in which God has always taken care of his people, the way that God has always shown up in their lives. Jesus is frustrated at them for not knowing because if they had just read the Old Testament well, they would be able to easily recognize him. They don't need a sign. They need to read the stories that God has already given to them in the Old Testament. Jesus is frustrated with the disciples because they don't trust him to provide even though he has done it countless times. 
that leads us to our big idea for today. And that is simply that God's past proves the future. God's past proves the future. Basically, what God has done in the past, both your personal past and the collected works of God throughout Scripture and history, should give you a good indication of what he will do in the future. And why do we need to say this? Because it is so easy to forget. We saw it in both of these groups of people, both in enemies of Jesus, but also in his 12 closest friends, both forgetting what he had done. And here's the thing, and I want to just let this like sting us a little bit, that this forgetting is not like a neutral thing, like, oh, I forgot my car keys or something like that. It's actually wrong to do. Some of you guys who have bad memories are like, hold on, what did he just say, that forgetting things is wrong? Some of you with really bad memories are like, no, seriously, what did he just say, right? Like, this is not good. That was a joke. Anyway, Jesus calls the Pharisees evil and adulterous for wanting a sign other than what God had already showed them. I thought a lot about the particular wording here of adulterous, and I think what Jesus is hitting, hitting on here is like, this is like akin to forgetting your first love, like forgetting the spouse, that you're supposed to love. God here is the spouse being cheated on, and he's like, why are you chasing after these other lovers? Why are you seeking someone who is not me? Haven't I always been faithful to you? Haven't I always been there for you? You saw this all too much when we walked through the book of Hosea, if you were with us uh, a couple years back when we walked through that entire book. Hosea is asked to marry an adulterous woman just so he might feel a little glimpse of what God feels for his people. He is constantly loving. They are constantly running away. And this is not just to guilt us or to make us feel bad, just to remind us that to forget God's faithfulness and kindness and goodness to us is not a neutral act, that it is actually wrong. <clears throat> if you're a parent or you've worked with kids, you know this feeling, right? You walk into the kitchen and you see like the entire gallon of milk slowly dribbling out on the floor and Cheerios everywhere and you say, what happened here? Did you grab the cereal supplies and get tased at the exact same time? Like, what is going on? How could you possibly make this big of a mess? And when you're talking to the child, they say something like, I was hungry, so I decided I would make myself some cereal. And you think to yourself, have I not always helped you with cereal? Like, have I always not been there to provide this small act of service to you? What is it in your mind that today woke up and said to themselves, like, I don't think there's any way that I'm going to get cereal unless I get it for myself. And as a parent, you don't walk in of that situation thinking like, oh, this is a neutral act. I mean, maybe if they're the right age, you're like, oh, good for some independence. Good for you. But your first thought, I think, is like, man, why didn't you think to ask me about this? I've always been there for you, providing this for you. And I think that's what Jesus is sort of like embodying right here when he's talking uh, to the Pharisees, but even more to the disciples. Did you not think that I would help you? Why are you worried about bread? We've all done this to some degree, right? Like been absolutely freaking out about something and then God steps in and takes care of us. And we're like, why was I so worried about that? That's so weird. This actually happened this past week. 
Uh, many of you guys know we have like a little foster baby. Uh, we were trying to find uh, childcare in the city of Denver that was both affordable and available, and that is next to impossible, all right? It really is just crazy. Uh, we should have been on a waiting list probably two years before we had a foster baby if we wanted to get childcare for her. Uh, it really is just nuts. And anyway, uh, we just got some, which I think is like nothing short of miraculous, and it's like a great setup. It's going to be a sweet spot for us, I think. And I'm like looking at this, and I know that like Sarah has been praying about this. I haven't even really been like, uh, like calling out to God on this at all. I've just been like worrying about it over time. And then it like comes in, and I had this immediate feeling of just God being like, isn't this what I always do? Like, why were you worried about this? I was just sitting around, stressing out, thinking I was going to die. Um, and that I was basically, yeah, dying for me would be having a baby attached to me all the time, right? Sarah apparently can't take her to school, so I would just be walking around with a Bjorn on the entire time. Uh, and I would be, like, dying, right? So that's what I was thinking. And instead, God actually steps in and provides exactly what we need exactly when we need it. It's crazy, right? This is why Jesus, I think, was so frustrated both with the disciples and the Pharisees and Sadducees. Like, can't you read the signs that I've already given you? I've always been taking care of you. Why would you think that I wouldn't do it now? <clears throat> when you notice a situation like that, it makes you, makes you more aware of the ways that you're probably not trusting in God. <clears throat> At least that's what happened to me this past week. Ways that you're missing out on what God is doing right in front of you. So maybe for the rest of the time today, think about what exactly are you freaking out about right now? What has you stressing? Maybe it's like job stuff or relationship stuff. Maybe it's something in your family, something going on with your friends. Is it at all similar to something that God has taken care of in the past? And if so, how do we do better? How do we fix this? I believe... <clears throat> Our two uh, sort of cues for this come from the text. The first group of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their problem was that they didn't know the story of God well enough to be able to see when God was standing right in front of them. And the disciples uh, didn't remember well enough how what much God had taken care of them, even though he was right there in front of them as well. The same is true for both, or for us. So first, what we must do is eat this book. Now, this idea comes from multiple places in Scripture, uh, most notably from Ezekiel 3 and also the Apostle John in Revelation 10. And in both of these cases, uh, the angel is speaking to both of these prophets and tells them not to make note of something or that they need to tell people something, but instead said to eat this scroll. Eugene Peterson, in his book called Eat This Book, says it this way. But the type of eating that John is experiencing is not the kind that equips us to pass an examination. Eating a book takes it all in, assimilating it into the tissue of our lives. Readers become what they read. The angel does not instruct John to pass on information about God. He commands him to assimilate the word of God so that when he does speak, it will express itself art artlessly. Art no, that's not right. I don't know what that word was. In his syntax, just as the food we eat, when we are healthy, it, un it is unconsciously assimilated into our nerves and muscles and put, work, and put work in speech and action. You see here that when we truly ingest the word of God, it changes our lives. 
The religious leader knew God's word backward and forward, but obviously it had not sunk deeply enough into their hearts so that they might believe in Jesus. That's why he offers them the sign of Jonah. You've probably done this with a good story before in your life, right? Like you've probably like gotten so deep into something that it becomes a part of you. I mean, like the first time that you read The Lord of the Rings, which, by the way, you guys are all adults. You should have done it at least once by now. I'm sorry. I am actually shaming you for that. You start seeing the world through that lens. I remember uh, actually somebody in our group was reading or was watching through the movies the first time um, when we were reading in 1 Samuel, and he kept saying, oh, my goodness, this is just like the battle for Helm's Deep. And I was like, no, the battle for Helm's Deep is like this, all right? This is what it is from, right? Or even when you're like watching a good TV show a lot, uh, you start to see life through that lens. You'll start sentences like, I don't want to be too Ron Swanson about this, but people should be able to build their own shelves. I don't know why we all have to go and buy shelves. That should be a thing. That should be a basic human thing, right? The same is true of Scripture. When you immerse yourself into it, it changes the way that you see the rest of the world. I need to say this, actually, so that I can remember uh, it's sort of like having the mountains, like, just always, you know, on our, like, left-hand shoulder. Like, they're just always there, and you, like, start to forget it. The same is true of Scripture. Like, we miss out on how good it actually is because it is always right by our side. This, this book, is the most beautiful and important story ever written. All stories fit into this book. All stories come from this book in some way. It is a testament to generations, handing down the tale, passing it on from person to person, generation to generation, collecting the word, preserving the word. It is the most sold book of all time. It's in almost every language, in every country, and across the whole planet. You can't really understand Western literature without it. Like, it is necessary reading. You can't understand art history without this because so much art is based off of that. But above all of that, it actually gives us a glimpse into the heart and mind of God so that we might better understand him and ourselves at the same time. And yet, very often, it's just a paperweight, just sitting on a desk on a shelf somewhere. We've become far too comfortable with it, and because of that, we miss out on understanding who God is and actually believing that he's going to take care of us when we're in trouble. If you think you're in a bad situation in life, Scripture steps in and says, hey, I don't think you've been in nearly as bad a situation as some of these people that God takes care of. If you find yourself confused about what you ought to do next, you are in extremely good company with the people of Scripture. If you find yourself in a place where you really just feel like you've been abandoned, where you've been rejected, where God may not care or understand what you're going through, Scripture is full of people that feel exactly that same way. Even some of the best parts of Scripture, like even in Psalms written by David, half the time he's freaking out, assuming that God has forgotten who he is or whether or not he should care about him. So here's the practical application. Simply read it. A little bit every day. I know it sounds like a little sort of, you know, pedantic or childish, right? Like you're in a youth group and they're like, you better have your quiet time every day. But this is a good and healthy thing to do. Generations of Christians have lived and died without even the opportunity that you and I have today. It's a challenging thing, right? To build in a new habit, to, to start something fresh, but it is a good and meaningful thing. If you're in a person who is in a place right now where you're like not remembering the faithfulness of God and you're having trouble remembering that, 
My challenge to you is simply read through the book of John over the next three weeks. It's 21 chapters. It's pretty easy. Uh, pretty easy to go through. Just one chapter a day. Simple, easy, straightforward. You will be reminded in that moment of the sweetness and goodness of God. Read just a little bit every day. There's tons of reading plans also, apps, study Bibles to help you get started. If you're having trouble, I would also recommend talking to your dwell group about it. See what works for different people in your group uh, for them. And remember that Scripture is the way in which you will see and remember God. The next idea, <clears throat> this was more to uh, the disciples who had seen God work in their own life is that faith is choosing to remember. Faith is choosing to remember. There is something of a spiritual practice in Scripture that we don't talk about all that often, yet God spoke to the people of God about it all the time, and that is the spiritual art of remembering. I don't have time to go into it today, but almost every time in the Old Testament that God does something amazing, he tells his people to remember it, to take note, to write something down, to hand down that memory. It happens at the ending of the flood. It happens at the giving of the Ten Commandments. It happens almost 50 times throughout the Psalms. Uh, my favorite example of this actually is when Joshua uh, leads the people to cross the Jordan River. So if you remember the story, the people of God had been wandering around in the, Israelite, or in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, they go up to this impassable river, and the promised land is right on the other side where God had told them he was going to give them. They show up, and they're like, well, we can't cross this river. I guess we're done here. It's been a good 40 years. Uh, I guess we'll just die now. And instead, God stops the river. Uh, they pass right through on dry land. They get to the other side. They're finally in the promised land. They're all ready to go. They're ready to take over uh, the part of the world back then that they knew they were ready to start a new civilization. They were ready to be the people of God and start this brand new nation and everything was going to be great. And instead of all of the strategic work that they needed to do, God actually tells them to stop. He tells them to stop. He tells them to go into the river and pick up 12 stones and set up the 12 stones. And this is what he tells them to do. This is uh, Joshua 4, 19 through 24. It says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did in the Red Sea which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. See, in that moment, God knew exactly the type of people that they were, that they were human beings just like you and me. He knew everything that they had been through, and he knew that even in spite of all the amazing things that he had done, that they were going to forget. So he says, set up these 12 stones so that future generations may remember. This stack of stones stands as a testament to what God had done. Its explicit purpose was right there in the text. So that all peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and you may fear the Lord your God forever. That fear is not like a spooky kind of Halloween fear, but more a respect of who God is. God is saying that when you look at these stones, you might remember to put me in my rightful place, that you might remember what I have done for you and what I will do for you. It's always been wild to me that God, in the midst of this huge undertaking of moving these thousands, tens of thousands of people into the promised land, 
He's about to transform a bunch of wilderness nomads into a nation and a people that would occupy the region uh, for hundreds and in some ways thousands of years to varying capacities. And he says, before all of that, I need you to stop here and now and remember the good things that I have done. If we want to know what God has done later on in our lives, we need to make memories of it now. That is the spiritual art of remembering. That's why we need to remember. The failure of the disciples in our story today was a failure of remembering. They would believe that bread isn't something they should ever be concerned about if they could just remember the way that God had done a miracle in front of them. We need to set up uh, pathways and, and means by which we might remember now. That is actually the pathway to having more faith. If you find yourself in a situation where you don't believe that God is going to come through for you, it's not a problem of like imagining a future. It's a problem of remembering a past. So what does that look like practically for you? For Israel, it was an art installation, right? Uh, I always think with this stack of stones, I don't know what it actually looked like. Have you guys seen that weird melted bean sculpture downtown? It's like right beside one of the bridges. Okay, nobody else has seen this. Somebody clearly set that up as an Ebenezer, a testament to something. I don't know what. Uh, maybe remembering that, you know, Denver wasted a bunch of money on an art installation. I don't really know what it was. Uh, but that's like what it was for Israel, right? Is this huge stack of stones. You're just walking around, and then you would see it, and you would tell your kids, hey, hey we crossed the Jordan over there. How crazy is that? Or, hey, your great-great-grandparents did that. We actually did something very similar at our wedding. We had, like, this little stack of stones, and now we've moved it around the country to, like, three different states and 17 different houses, it feels like, and we keep it in a glass jar for no reason, right? Eventually, it is definitely going to shatter, uh, and we're going to be super sad, but for right now, we have kept this stack of stones to remember our own wedding day. What is it for you? What is it that helps you remember? Maybe it's journaling. That's probably like the most common kind of like spiritual discipline that gets brought up when we talk about remembering. Journaling is a way of, like, capturing your thoughts. In fact, uh, my favorite journal brand uh, has this quote that says, I'm not writing it down to remember this later. I am writing it down to remember it now, which I think is, is very often true when I'm having trouble sorting through and thinking my thoughts. So maybe the next time that God steps in and does something amazing in your life, take a second and write it down. Maybe you're not so much of a journaler. Uh, maybe you need to set your memories to music. Uh, we all know there's lots of different ways that like memories are cued and music is like a really, uh, I think, tight one. Uh, maybe it's even getting a tattoo. I don't really know what it is for you. That's you know fine if that's what you wanna do. You need to find a way to remember it or else you are going to forget. Faith then, when we're facing something hard, is less of an act of assuming or hoping for an ideal future, but remembering a beautiful past and trusting that for the future. That's so much better, right? That takes faith away from being this kind of like, you know, whimsy, kind of like insane thing that we would ask someone to do. Like, just believe. Like, wh where does that come from? And instead, it t makes it into something tangible, we were able to just look back on the history of God and trust that he is going to continue to be the same God and do the same things. That is true hope. That is better than some sort of arbitrary faith. Remember better that you might believe better. Band, you guys can come on up. Um, here's what I would like for us to do as we close, actually. is take a moment right now to think about what God has done good in your life. 
So every week we have this time of response. You have some time that we're actually giving you there in your seats to just process and to be with God. And so in this time, I want to give you some space to do that. Remember on what God has done good in your life. Remember it now. And maybe you're saying to yourself, like, I don't think God has done anything good in my life. Uh, I don't know that God has done anything for me. I don't even know if I necessarily believe in God. And if that's you right now, like, that's okay. And I'm excited for you because that means that you don't yet know the good news. You don't yet know the blessing that God is to you. That even if you can't point to one sort of like miraculous thing that he has done in your life, for each and every person in this room and for each and every person in the world, he has actually died on the cross for us. That while we were still opposed to God and running away from him, that Jesus would actually take all of our sins, all of the ways that we have pushed back and rejected God, and he would actually carry those to the cross and that that forgiveness that he offers to us is available to you. We're also going to respond in two other ways. The ways that we celebrate uh, that gift from Jesus is actually through the taking of communion. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, I invite you to take the juice, which symbolizes the blood that was shed for you. I invite you to take the bread, which symbolizes the body that was broken for you, and do all of these things in remembrance of Jesus. And then finally, if you need prayer on anything, there's going to be a couple of people right out there in the lobby who would love to pray with you about anything. Uh, It doesn't have to be this big and audacious thing. Maybe you're just asking for someone to help you pray for faith, to believe that God will take care of you in whatever situation that you're facing. So uh, let me pray for you. Dear God, I ask uh, right now that you would meet us here. God, that you would remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness and your kindness. God, that you remind us of the good things that you have done in our lives and for your glory. God, give us the remembrance that we need right now so that we might have the faith that we need, God, to chase you and to believe you uh, even more in the future. God, we love you and we thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope it brought you closer to Jesus and more in touch with the world around you. Being a Christian in today's culture can be hard. Fortunately, he gives us the gift of community through his church. So we would love to invite you to join us for one of our Sunday morning gatherings or for one of our weekly small groups. All the details you need can be found on our website, dwelldenver.org.